Greetings, Arenacast folks. I am excited to tell you about an upcoming opportunity that we call Intersections. It is a live Zoom event, February 3 through March 10, Thursday nights from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. There are only so many spaces available to enable this deep community to form. Intersections is a facilitated, brave, non-judgmental, confidential conversation space for processing our journeys of faith shift, faith loss, and or faith questions. It's different for everyone, and yet there are connecting and common threads. Really amazing things happen when we just talk about our experiences of deconstructing faith together. Jeff, Casey, Rajiv, and yours truly are the facilitators, and we are so honored to be in it with you. So if you might need this, I hope you'll consider signing up. Our winter 2022 cohort, again, is Thursdays, February 3 through March 10 at 7 p.m. Pacific time via Zoom. Register today on our Intersections website, theintersections.space or use the link in the show notes. Now on to today's episode. Hello everyone and welcome. We are Hyrenacast. We're a group of folks leaning into our progressive Christian imagination. And on the first and third Tuesday of every month, we provoke conversation for shifting perspectives on theology and culture. Thank you for joining us. This week, Bonnie sits down with Carolyn Baker. They discuss her newest book, Confronting Christofascism, Healing the Evangelical Wound. This is a great conversation, so we want to get to it as quickly as possible. Just up front, I want to remind everyone that if you hear anything in this episode that you like, you can check the show notes at irenicast.com slash 194, and there you'll find all the links that are discussed in this particular episode. Also, a link to register for our intersections, as well as subscribe to our email list. That's the best way to continue to find out what's happening here at Irenicast. That's irenicast.com slash 194 for the show notes this week. And of course, as usual, if you enjoy Irenicast and would like to join the work that we're doing, please consider donating to our PayPal link at irenicast.com slash PayPal. We are committed to keeping the show for free, but of course there are costs involved and your financial support helps. That's irenicast.com slash PayPal. Irenicast is also a nonprofit organization, so your donations are tax deductible. And finally, you can also support the show by simply making sure you follow the show on whatever list, whatever platform you're listening to this podcast. And if the platform allows it, please leave a rating and or review. We would really appreciate it. Thank you once again for listening. And without any further ado, here is this week's conversation that Bonnie has with Carolyn Baker. Hello, everyone. This is Bonnie Rambob here, co-host of Arenacast. And I'm here with our guest, um, Carolyn Baker. Carolyn was a psychotherapist in private practice for 17 years and a professor of psychology and history for 10 years. And she's the author of 13 books, including uh, Navigating the Coming Chaos, a book for inner transition, Sacred Demise, Walking the Spiritual Path of Industrial Civilization's Collapse, Love in the Age of Ecological Apocalypse. And then you have a, a forthcoming book. Isn't that right, Carolyn? 
Well, the book that I think we're going to talk about today, which is Confronting Christofascism, Healing the Evangelical Wound. Yes, and we are going to talk about that today. And I, I binged on another book. I read a couple of your books this week because I'm so interested in in your voice and what you bring to this time. But I read the book uh, Collapsing Consciously, and I've started those meditation practices that you have there in the back of the book. So I am just really honored and delighted to be in conversation with you today. I have lots of questions, and I look forward to taking in your wisdom. And I know that our listeners on a Renacast are going to deeply appreciate your insights as well. Why don't we just start with you telling us a little bit about your story, your your own spiritual faith journey, and whatever you'd like to share about that. So uh, I was born in the Midwest to Billy Graham Baptist parents, and I uh, was an only child. I was very devoted to the religion up until I began to understand that I was gay. And, and by the way, in Confronting Christofascism, I have my whole story in there. But I went off to Bible college in 1963 and, um, of course, was attracted to another female student. And that became a nightmare because uh, we got discovered and she left the school. And I, and I was suicidal because this was the first love of my life. From there, I went on to university, and it really wasn't until the university experience that I began to fully question what I was raised with in terms of religion and spiritual teaching. In those days, everybody was in the closet. You know, there was all of this shame around being gay. And so, you know, I tried and tried throughout high school and in my early college years to pray away the gay. If I just do this and if I just do this, it will go away. And then when I was at the Bible college, I got into therapy with a psychologist, a Christian psychologist who was really committed to changing me and gave me all this false hope that, you know, well, you can really change and blah, blah. Through that process and then through my college education and really uh, confronting and experiencing the women's movement, I finally, at the age of 26, was able to come out to myself and to the rest of the world. And then it was a long journey of seeking, you know, seeking a spiritual path. What is right for me? You know, I, I got into some new age stuff in the 80s. And then I began to really look at what was going on with the climate, what's going on with our civilization in general in terms of its uh, demise. I began to write about that. And I wrote my first book on that topic in 2008, Sacred Demise, Walking the Spiritual Path of Industrial Civilizations Collapse. And up until this most recent book, that's pretty much what I've been writing about. I've written a couple, uh, four books with my writing partner, Andrew Harvey, taking a, you know, a, a really psycho-spiritual look at what is happening on our planet and how we can prepare for it emotionally and spiritually. And I will probably continue to write in that genre, but... Given the four years of Trump and watching the Republican Party become completely white supremacist and watching the evangelicals shape 
this demise in our culture, I felt compelled because of my background to write this most recent book. Thank you. Yeah, and and uh, I had the privilege of of reading your book, Christofascism, Healing the Evangelical Wound. And I, like you, have am coming out of a fundamentalist evangelical tradition and have transitioned on a seeker's path into a completely different realm of of Christianity. Now I'm identify as progressive Christian, but a lot of your story resonates. You know, as I read your book, I read it reads as like part American history, part politics, part theology, part memoir, part guidebook for recovery from evangelical and fundamentalism. And I mean, there's a lot in there in in those 170 pages or so. I was just really, I I really appreciated the way it was condensed, and it. Yeah. It felt like it was really important to do it that way uh, and not just focus on my story, but give the historical background and then really address it in part to people who are struggling with being evangelical or people who have come away from being evangelical. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm addressing part of the book to those folks because we really need a lot of help when we're going through that process. Absolutely. And that's our audience of our Renicast. So I want to talk with you a little bit more. Um, you, you just barely touched on this when you were saying that, you know, the Trump years and you felt compelled to write this book. And then you also identified a little bit your audience, people who are leaving um, some of those evangelical fundamentalist churches, and maybe they're leaving because of Trump or something shifted in them during those years when they became uh, more aware of what's actually going on. Do you feel a sense of urgency? Like, is is time of the essence here for you as you were writing this book? Yeah, it, it certainly is. Um, because I'm, I'm watching what's going on now with the Biden administration and the real attempt to pull us back from the edge of descending completely into fascism. But I think we're hanging on by a thread. You know, I think democracy in our country is on life support. And so I feel a profound sense of urgency to really resist because there are so many parallels, which I talk about in the book, between what's happening now and what happened in Germany in the 1930s, even to the point of there was a Third Reich church, and they had this symbol of of the cross with a Nazi, you know, with a swastika in the middle of it. There were actually people who called themselves Christians who were openly members of the Nazi party. And, you know, I'm looking at that. I'm looking at what what's happening in our country right now. And my jaw is on the floor. And I'm saying, you know, we don't have a lot of time to pull ourselves back from the edge. And I think the January 6th insurrection uh, is not finished, even though, you know, hardly anyone turned up for the protest this weekend in Washington to support the January 6th insurrectionists. There is an underlying violence that's going on now against democracy, and that's playing out pretty much with the voter suppression in almost all of the states and the perpetuation of the big lie that Trump is really the president and Biden isn't, and and the efforts to to fight the progressive measures in Congress that the Democrats are working on. So, 
you know, if Trump had had a second term, I don't know if we'd be having this conversation. And um, I would have written this book probably, but in a different way. Right. Yeah. And we still don't know whether or not Trump will have a second term. Like we're we're in this this intercession, this this period in between. Yeah. And there are some there are some people who are just as deadly as he is, only smarter. And I'm thinking about Josh Hawley. And I'm thinking about Tom Cotton, who's also a born-again Christian. And some of these younger, smarter guys with Harvard and Yale educations, long after Trump is gone, <laughs> they'll be around and they'll be running. Right. Well, you 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 definitely use a few terms in your book that I would love for you to talk some more about. First one is the title of your book, Christofascism. How did you come to to that particular term as your title? I kind of borrowed it from Chris Hedges. Chris Hedges is a very progressive author, very prolific author. And he wrote a book uh, several years ago on Christian fascism and how the evangelical church was playing into the right-wing politics of of the George W. Bush administration. I don't know if he ever used the words Christofascism, but he talked a lot about Christian fascism. So that's one place. And then I mentioned in the book, Kevin Phillips, who wrote the wonderful book, American Theocracy, back during the George W. Bush administration. And he, too, was talking about the combination of Christianity and fascism very much. And, and it's a very confrontational term. It is. It is. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you something interesting about the the marketing of this book. You can buy uh, the Confronting Christofascism with the red cover on, on Amazon, but the Kindle version has a different color. That title is Healing the Evangelical Wound, the End of Religious Authoritarianism. And that book is exactly the same content, but it has a different cover. We're aware that uh, the Christofascism cover uh, could put Amazon off in terms of uh, marketing, uh, but the other cover is harmless and doesn't seem to be as intimidating. Which one do you prefer? Oh, of course, I prefer the wild (laughs) and crazy red one, you know, (laughs) of course, As as my cousin who's an artist says, you know, that other cover doesn't say much of anything. I want the red one. So, Yeah, absolutely. Helps you to know what the book is about. Indeed. Yeah. There's no mistaking what the book is about. And another term you use, um, which we've heard in other contexts, is religious terrorism. But you, you use that term in relation to Christian religious terrorism. And I'd love to hear you say a little bit more about that, too. A colleague of mine, Marlene Winnell, wrote a wonderful book, I forget how many years ago, but it's done really well. It's called Leaving the Fold. And she was raised uh, by Pentecostal parents who are missionaries in China. And she was a very, very devout fundamentalist Christian until she too went to college and um, began to, to really understand what her background was about. She is now dedicating her work to helping people recover from religious abuse 
I don't know that she uses the word terrorism, but I certainly feel that the whole evangelical theological experience is a form of terrorism because it is based on shame and it is based on fear. Uh, As you grow up evangelical or or as you convert to it, you must admit that you are inherently sinful. And that you need to be born again. And it is based also on fear. Unless you are born again, you're told that you're going to go to hell and burn. And uh, particularly if you're a feminist or you're LGBTQ, you're going to go to hell. Uh, And so it's constantly shaming yourself or being shamed in that milieu and constantly fearing, okay, I'm born again now, so I'm not going to go to hell, but I really have to walk this very straight line and I have to follow the Christian path. And oh, oh, yesterday I didn't, I did something wrong. So, oh, I got to go to God and confess, you know, and, and then, you know, it's a shame cycle as Marlene Winnell talks about it. You, you sin and you repent, you sin and you repent. And then, you know, one day you just go, oh, I've just really screwed up. And now I have to come back and rededicate my life to Jesus. And it goes on and on and on like that for some people their entire lives. Certainly did with my parents for their entire lives. And for so many, for so many people. Yeah, millions. So the terrorism then is, is it's sort of a personal religious terrorism. It is, but it's also, as we see with uh, what's happening now in Texas, with the abortion law. It's this authoritarian, we're going to tell you what to do because you must function, the culture must function according to our theocratic, theological worldview. It's not okay to be LGBTQ. It's not okay to terminate pregnancy. We will tell you how to live. And if you don't, We will scare the hell out of you. God will punish you. We in the church may punish you and in some way further shame you more than you already are. It's a terrorism with the whole culture as well as with individuals. And, and you, you know, what comes through in your writing, and I am maybe mixing the books up. So if I am, (laughs) but um, what I read in your writing was that. You you sort of see an inherent fragility in this Christian authoritarian, you know, regime, whatever we want to call it. And I I wonder if if you do like t- what you're just describing the shame cycle and you know all of these things th- this forced belief system or else you know you you will be doomed to hell. There's something that seems very unsustainable about that. Very fragile. Well, that's why there have to be all of these uh, rules and regulations and why you have to live in a certain way because you're so vulnerable to, you know, the culture is screaming at you, hello, wake up, this is life, this is real, And, and you can't listen, so you have to shut these things out and you have to control even harder than you might ordinarily in, in some other worldview, because it is so fragile. 
So the more fragility, the more need for control. Has it gotten more fragile recently, do you think? Or has it always been inherently fragile? I think it's always been inherently fragile. Like during the Bush administration, when the religious right was really taking off and they were going full speed ahead and and the televangelism movement uh, was very, very popular and really thriving. But then the human shadow came in, which Jung talks about, and you saw a lot of scandals. You saw, you know, Jimmy Swagger being caught with his pants down literally at the motel downtown and, you know, a number of sexual scandals because the control is fragile. The control itself is fragile. And so what happens is you just have to have more control and more control and more control. And eventually that house of cards will fall. Which is part of what you're uh, calling us into this, the spiritual journey into the fall of the house. And Christofascism, it may be an iteration or a step on the journey, but eventually, somewhere down the road, there's going to be a, a fall. Well, we can only hope. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, it can be in power for some time, you know, indefinitely. I mean, if this country really becomes a, a fascist empire, that can go on for a long time. You know, and then it's happening alongside climate catastrophe, economic inequality, and a lot of other things that are that are already undermining the culture and the planet. And with fascism, it's the same thing as fundamentalist Christianity, which is more control, more control, more control. So it becomes even more authoritarian and oppressive. You know, the other thing that you mentioned alongside all of all of these factors is this like allergic reaction to uncertainty, almost complete discomfort with our own mortality. I wonder, could you say any more about that? Sure, sure. Um, In fundamentalist Christianity, you cannot be uncertain because the Bible has all the answers. Anything you need to know is in those 66 books of the Bible. It's all there and you have to be certain And again, you know, this military metaphor that is so common in evangelical circles that we're at war with principalities and powers, you know, outside of us that we have to put on the whole armor of God and we have to be really good soldiers. And, you know, I was taught very early on in my childhood that the Bible is your sword and you have to know what's in the sword and you have to know how to use it. And you can't be uncertain. What do you mean uncertain? All of the answers are there. You just need to study the Bible and memorize scripture and be able to, you know, and read all the great theological scholars. Then you'll have all the answers. There's nothing to be uncertain about. You know, in terms of the climate, well, that's really a hoax. We're not going to pay attention to the scientists. And I'm not saying that all evangelicals are anti-vaccine, but a lot of them are. And we're not going to pay attention to the doctors and the scientists, you know, because what do they know? God will protect me. Again, it's always this fragility that we talked about and then having to build up barriers around that. Now, in my path today, which is you know, really a mixture of a lot of traditions, 
I'm not a practicing Buddhist, but I I love the Buddhist aspect, the Buddhist perspective of uncertainty. You know, and one of my hero, hero heroines is Pema Chodron, who wrote this wonderful book, Comfortable with Uncertainty. And you go back to the Christian mystics, the unknown mystic who wrote The Cloud of Uncertainty. You know, our spiritual path, it's my spiritual path, is all about not knowing for sure. I don't know for sure. A lot of, and I must admit that moment to moment, I don't know for sure. I know from my own experience, but I don't know because somebody else said it or because it's written somewhere. I have to be present to this moment, to this day, to this month. I have to be present to that and not know. That's where faith and reliance on my own experience comes in. And I and I think, you know, many of our listeners are in, are in various parts of the journey. This journey that, you know, you go two steps forward, one step back and spiral and, you know, all of these detours along the way to get from the place of having all the answers to being comfortable with uncertainty that in some ways that feels like that's just an impossibility you know were there steps along the way that like you know how how did that movement happen for you oh definitely steps along the way i as i talk about in the book one of the things that really attracted me when of course i moved from the midwest to colorado to california right so when i land in southern california I got very involved with new age spirituality. You know, there was kind of a certainty about that too. And it felt so good because the teachings are telling you, you're perfect as you are, you're unconditionally loved, and there's no such thing as darkness, and there's no such thing as evil, which is a real setup for the shadow to come in, the undiscovered, undealt with shadow. And so, you know, I I moved from that into just a Jungian therapy was very important for me, 11 years of that, very intensely, and really becoming familiar with the work of Jung and applying it in my life. So that was a huge step in the direction of becoming comfortable with uncertainty. In more recent years, I've really followed the teachings of Richard Rohr, who is a Franciscan priest. who founded the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, He's been a great teacher, as has Matthew Fox. And so it's been a journey, a progression along the way to where I am now. And I'm not saying that where I am now is written in stone, because I'm growing, I'm seeking, I'm opening every day. Yeah, I think we're familiar here on a Renicast with Richard Rohr and Matthew Fox, um, two really great theologians for for the times that we're living in. As you were as you were talking, it just made me think about those of us who did grow up in such authoritarian worlds, and and especially I think there's genders involved in this as well. Growing up a girl and then becoming a woman in that world, I felt like I had very little of myself left to myself. So to just even discover, to trust my own authority, to know, you know, where I should turn 
left or right or you know where which voices I should listen to that was a that has been quite the journey in and of itself do you have did you have any experiences like that or any wisdom and how how does one like find one's own trustworthy voice well early on i knew that there were things i could not do as a woman I talk in the book of how, about how at the age of four or five, I used to get up every morning in my little bedroom and preach, you know, and my dad made me a pulpit, you know, but I realized fairly quickly, you know, this is a fantasy. I, I enjoy doing this, but I can't really be a preacher, you know, and then when I went to Bible college, I mean, that was back in the day, and it was like, there are no women preachers. You can be a missionary. You can be something else in, in Christian circles, but you can't really preach. Very early on, I knew my limitations. And, you know, women must keep silence in the church. And, you know, the real movers and shakers were all men. Tremendous limitation everywhere. And now I look today because I haven't been, until I wrote this book, I haven't been really much in contact with the churches or the church. And it's kind of like, I go to different websites today, and I see all these women ministers, and I'm just going, oh, my God, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. You know, who knew? You know, certainly not my generation. Right. It's definitely a newer phenomenon. Mm. <laughs> definitely. Yes. There are a few of us out there now. Say, say something about the um, emotional side of healing from the evangelical wound. You know, I think for many of us, uh, we went to the library, we went to college, we went to, you know, we used our, our critical thinking skills and our cognitive processing abilities to, to easily see that what we had been taught and what we were now discovering about the world no longer lined up. But there's the heart side of that journey too. And you beautifully talk about that in your book. So I would love to hear you say more about that part. I think I have to really credit uh, my experience with Jungian therapy with that because, well, first, let me say everybody has been traumatized. You know, I don't think there are any humans on the planet that haven't been traumatized. But in coming face to face with my own trauma, it was crushing and heartbreaking really stripped off so many layers of ego and so many layers of protection and defenses. And I became extremely vulnerable. And from that, I had tremendous compassion for myself. It took me a lot of years to really have compassion for my parents. But by the time they left, I did really have compassion and I was able to see them as human beings out there that had nothing to do with me and really mourn for what they went through and really understand that probably this sounds counterintuitive, but their, their evangelical Christianity saved them from insanity, that they might have completely gone over the edge without it. Yeah, it was really, I think, more of a heart journey than a mental journey. And now I'm in a place where I'm more and more able to integrate those 
And I find myself putting those together much more in my life. And I find myself, instead of my default position being judgment, I still judge like crazy, but my default position much more now is, oh, wow, you know, I'm so sad for that person. It's harder when I hear, you know, Franklin Graham stand up and condemn, you know, LGBTQ people. Or I hear uh, some of these fundamentalist ministers stand up and tell people not to get vaccinated. That's not my first go-to compassion. But when I sit with it for a bit, I'm going, yeah, number one, that could be me saying those things. And number two, what a terrible story they must have lived to conclude that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think for many of us, we, we feel torn because if you have grown up in evangelical or fundamentalist community, you have people inside that community that you may no longer relate to when it comes to you know your worldview, but you still love them and care about them. How do you have conversation? You know, how does that compassion, maybe the compassion that you speak about, how might it be useful in a relationship? Well, let me first of all say that my dad passed last year due to COVID. In the last years of his life, you know, I came back into relationship with him after many, many years of pitched battles because my dad was incapable of having a relationship with me without constantly proselytizing. And so, you know, there were these, you know, emotional, not literal, but emotional knockdown drag outs, uh, you know, every time he would try to convert. But I stayed with him. You know, my mother had passed in 2003, and I, I really stayed with him in terms of helping him get into a nursing home. And he was truly sharp as a tack when he died. But I really stayed with him in terms of not breaking the connection. But there were boundaries that I had to have in order to even talk with him on the phone. And more so when I would visit him, which was rare because I live in Colorado and he was in Indiana. I had to have certain boundaries. What I have found with folks who are way out on the right wing, if I do have a conversation with them, as I talk about it in the book, being a good listener, being able to just listen, and to be able to sometimes say, oh, that's really interesting. And, and how did you come to that conclusion? And just let them talk, hear their story a bit, then say something like, well, I'll have to think about that but not trying to directly change them or confront them or quote unquote, set them straight because that's not possible. So um, being able to listen, and I think we all have our limits on that. Some of us understandably can't listen at all. And, you know, maybe we can listen for five minutes or even longer. You know, the main thing is not to confront. Now, of course, my title in this book is Confronting Christofascism, but I don't mean that in terms of arguing with these folks. 
I mean it in terms of let's confront it in ourselves if we have been down that road and let's confront it in the culture. Right. I agree with you. We don't have to go down that road. And yet it seems like so many of like there's momentum headed down that road. Yes. Yes. And we have to push against the momentum. We really have to do that. And we have to become my, my writing partner, uh, Andrew Harvey, wrote a book called The Hope, A Guide to Sacred Activism. And sacred activism is something that I'm very passionate about, that we have to marry our spiritual path with our activism. And we really have to be sacred activists in these times. And we have to call this stuff out. Uh, You know, it's like with the abortion law, we have to call out the injustice. With the inequality, we have to call that out. With the racism, we have to call that out in ourselves and in the culture. So it sounds like, and please uh, nuance or correct me, um, it sounds like you're really separating some of these these forces from the person. We confront the evil, if we want to use the word evil. I do. But but, (laughs) yeah, evil works for me too. Confront the evil, but not necessarily the human that's sitting across from you, who you're trying to practice listening to as best as you can. And some of us were too emotionally involved to be able to listen. We have to step back and step out of the room and let someone else do that for us yep. or yep. in place of us. So it sounds like you're separating those things. Well, trying to, and okay. I do it very imperfectly. You know, um, you should me see too. When, when I'm sitting at home watching TV and one of them comes on and, you know, like, what can I throw at the TV? You know, <laughs> oh, I don't want to break my TV. Um, <laughs> I'm going to spare the TV, but the hell with them. So I do it very imperfectly. I'm talking about more when I speak of this separating. It's more in terms of individual conversations or perhaps conversations with family members or co-workers or neighbors, but in terms of the culture and, and the political conversation, I'm going to call it what it is, as Dr. King did, as William Barber does, as, you know, as the great, the great leaders of social justice, Dorothy Day, have done forever. Mm-hmm. So there's a place then for religious people, progressive religious people in this work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm summoning people to this work. You know, I think it's important to go back and read some of the German Christians at the time of Hitler, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who really stood up and said, this is evil. This is not Christian. You may call yourself the Reich Church, but this is evil. You know, I, in the book, I plead for role models like yourself. Uh, you know, stand up and call it out. It's not Christianity. It's, it has nothing to do with what Jesus taught and lived. Yes, I. You know, of course, you're 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 speaking to the the choir. choir, (laughs) Absolutely, (laughs) Um, and and that it's highly motivating to read your book. And from the particular perspective that you offer, 
you know, it, like I said, part history, part politics, part theology, part memoir, you know, you work your own story into the call that you are, you're calling us into. And so you're, you're still using the language of Christianity. And I think, you know, those who have been so, so harmed by that language sometimes have a difficult time picking it back up again. And I'm wondering if that was true for you. And if, if so, like, how did you find your way back to being able to, to say, yeah, the teachings of Jesus actually have value? Well, I think through some of the role models that, that I have seen in more recent years, like Richard Rohr, I remember I lived in Albuquerque for a while, and I had the privilege of attending some of his classes. Of course, I read lots of his books and uh, went to a lot of his workshops. I watched some of the role models that he talked about. And one day he said to me, you know, a bunch of us are going to be taking a trip down to the border, the Mexican border. We're going to spend the weekend with poor people on the other side of the border. And would you like to come? And I said, yeah, you know, that weekend was very powerful for me because we spent the whole weekend in houses with people that didn't have electricity and they had to carry in the water. And it was really, really primitive you know, we got to see the heartbreak of of their lives. More and more, I became familiar with some of these great people in the past, like St. Francis, like Claire, you know, Dorothy Day, you know, who gave their entire lives for the poor, for the suffering that was going on around them to alleviate that suffering. And it's kind of like, well, you know, this isn't a bad thing. The Buddhists are talking about compassion. In the Hindu tradition, there's all all this teaching about compassion and heartbreak. And so it's like, we'll get a clue here. You know, it's like Jesus wasn't a bad guy. And then, of course, I, I reverted back to my own uh, history in, in church history and You know, I was a history major as an undergrad, got a master's in history in Renaissance and Reformation. And then I realized the original teachings of Jesus and what happened in the first century was not bad at all. But it started to get all muckied up around the second and third and fourth centuries. And then it was like downhill from there. Those people who've been able to hang on to and revere the teachings of Jesus and the first century tradition of Christianity, yeah, it's like they're right up there on my saint list, you know, along with some great Buddhists, along with some great Hindus, along with some great members of of the Jewish tradition. Yeah, that's that's really helpful and, and beautiful. And I think there's something healing at least for me personally, to be able to, after having stripped myself completely from the tradition of my inheritance, to then find ways to uh, work it back in to my own practice. Absolutely. And one of the things that's been helpful to me in, in the work of Richard Rohr and Jim Finley and Cynthia Bourgeau and some of the folks that, that work with Richard in the Center for Action and Contemplation He wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Universal Christ. You know, when I read that book, first of all, I'm going, 
how is he not being excommunicated? <laughs> and secondly, oh my God, this is Buddhism. This is Hinduism. This is Islam. This is all of the traditions in what he, this universal Christ is in all of us. And you can call it whatever you like. He calls it the Christ. Could be the Buddha. It could be whatever you want to call it. But this sacred soul is within all of us. And Jesus taught that. And Jesus lived that as so many other great spiritual teachers have. Yes. So, so uh, beautiful and sort of full circle, (laughs) you know, coming back to. uh, But in a very different way. Absolutely. And we have to keep saying that as long as yeah. Christofascism exists, yes. we have to keep saying what we're talking about is very different. And it can be exhausting to do that, you know, but that is part of that cultural confrontation that you absolutely that absolutely. you talk about. Yes. Well, I before we before we close our time together, Carolyn, is there anything else that you really have, you know, that's on your heart that you feel like needs to be said? needs to get out there to those who might be listening to our podcast. Yeah, I would I just want to honor those folks that may be struggling with their evangelical upbringing or their experience in evangelical circles. I just want to let them know that you are loved and precious. You are a creation of the creator and that it doesn't matter your gender your sexual orientation, your class, your economic status, your educational status. What matters is that you are loved and precious. And I want to support you in following that loved and precious reality. And I want to support you in saying goodbye to the shame and fear. And I want to support all of us in saying goodbye to the shame and fear, whatever our upbringing. And then I want to support all of us in becoming sacred activists because we are at an inflection point right now, on a knife's edge where our culture can go either way. Stand on the side of democracy and freedom and your own autonomy instead of the autonomy of somebody else some political party, some president, and be free. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for that. And where can we find you? And I I can't commend Carolyn Baker's books enough. I already have a couple more on their way to my house. So, um, but where where else can we find you besides uh, Amazon? CarolynBaker.net. All right. Um, Please do check out Carolyn Baker's work and, and be inspired. And on Facebook as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for spending your time with us. And it was lovely to be in conversation with you. And yeah, uh, is the book Confronting Christofascism available now or is it? Absolutely. Okay. You can go to Amazon right this minute and order it as well as the other, you know, the other title, Healing the Evangelical Wound. Okay. Well, we're not recommending <laughs> either one is good. If you yeah, want the, yeah, the yeah. bright red cover or the uh, more 
Yeah, the uh, the boring, I call it the boring cover, um, <laughs> is the only one you have. To, if you want this in the Kindle version, you have to order that cover. Okay. But they're both on Amazon. And the contents are the same. So yes, uh, yes. either way, you'll get, you'll get uh, Carolyn's insights and wisdom. Yep. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your day there in Colorado. I don't know if that picture behind you is like a real picture behind you, but it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's a screen and uh, yeah, and I will enjoy my day and you as well, Bonnie. Thank you so much. We'll you talk bet. to you later. Bye. Bye.